And those of you with me, would you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 1. We have a big section to cover today. Matthew 9, 1. And getting into a boat, he, that's Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named, or a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but you, your disciples, do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then then they'll fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst. The wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. I have a question for you. What do you think is the biggest problem in your life? What's the biggest problem in your life right now? For some of you students, is it finals week? That's the big problem. For some of you, is it, is it your health issues? Just can't seem to stay healthy? Is it finances? Finances are the biggest problem. Paycheck to paycheck. I just can't seem to get ahead. When I say, what is your biggest problem? Do you think of people? The biggest problem in my life is... A coworker, a boss, my spouse, my children, family, neighbor. 
What is, who is the biggest problem in your life right now? There is a right answer to this question. And it is none of the examples that I gave. The right answer to this question, and this is going to hurt a little bit, the biggest problem in your life is your own sin. The biggest problem in my life is my own sin. The biggest problem in this world (laughs) is not overpopulation. It's not lack of population. It's not global warming. It's not a virus. The biggest problem in this world is sinful men and sinful women. You know, people don't like to talk about sin. Not a lot of preachers will preach on sin. Because they treat sin like a like a stain on their shirt. They talk about sin the same way they talk about a stain on their shirt. You know people with stains on their shirt? They do a variety of things. Some people just ignore it, right? Act like the stain isn't there, but all of us are looking right at it. Others try to cover it up so that people won't notice the stain. And then when it is noticed, people make all kinds of excuses for the stains on their shirts, don't they? It was the barista's fault. It was the soup's fault. It was too greasy. It's that sauce's fault. The sauce just had a mind of its own, jumped off the plate, attacked me. Everybody else's fault. All kinds of excuses for the stains on our shirt. Unfortunately, and and more seriously, people are full of excuses for their sin. They don't take full responsibility for it. They don't own it. It's not their problem, it's somebody else's. And what you need to see in order to embrace the message of of the Word of God this morning is, is that unless you see sin as your problem, then you will not see Christ as your solution. Unless you see your own sin as your own problem, then you'll not see Jesus Christ as the only solution. The message today is simple. Jesus Christ came to forgive sinners. That's really good news. But to receive it, you have to embrace your bad news. You're a sinner that needs a Savior. And this is not a difficult truth for a paralytic man or a, Pharisee, or a, sorry, a publican, a tax collector to see. But it was impossible for the Pharisees. They didn't think they needed forgiveness. Let me tell you something. Most people reject Jesus Christ not because they think they're too bad for His forgiveness. Most people reject Jesus Christ because they think they're too good for it. Billions of people believe that message and are running to hell because they think they're too good for forgiveness. They don't need it. We need to see ourselves, well, see Christ and see ourselves like the Apostle Paul does, a mature believer. You know what a mature believer writes to Timothy, his child in the faith? He says, Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, the most guilty, the most despicable. 
the worst sinner I know. Do you recognize that about yourself? And you know, I'll just tell you, that's not just a truth for unconverted Christians. You know, for you to recognize and then turn to Jesus Christ as Savior, and then all of a sudden you graduate past the whole sin conversation. No, that's a truth for mature believers. Sometimes I think we revert back to the Phariseeism way, where we put ourselves above other people. We think we're better than them. We look at the unconverted world and we think, ah, they deserve it all. No, such were some of you. We are all sinners saved by grace. And that should influence how we think about others, how we interact with fellow believers, and especially how we interact with the world. Share Christ. So this is a message we all need this morning. Whether you're, you're not a believer, you need, to hear, you need to hear this, see this, to turn to Christ in saving faith. And us as believers, we need to be reminded of this every day of our lives. We are sinners who need a Savior. And thanks be to God, by grace, by His mercy, He's offered us a way to be forgiven of our sins. So today we're going to look at the King's power over sin. I see this theme throughout these three interactions that we read through. Three interactions that show us the king's power over sin, and they highlight a unique aspect of it. The first is the interaction with the paralytic man. This highlights Jesus' authority to forgive sin. Jesus' authority to forgive sin. That's the first point in your outline. It says in verse 2, Uh, Verse 1, Jesus is going back to his home base. That's Capernaum, by the way. Okay? Capernaum. And uh, verse 2 says, Behold, now look at this. Watch this. That's what Matthew's telling us. Some people brought to him a paralytic. You know what a paralytic is. Someone who has lost motor function, right? In their limbs. This man was probably a, a quadriplegic. Because he's lying on a bed. He's unable to move. Mark and Luke fill in some of the details here. Four men are carrying him to Jesus, but they had a really difficult time getting in. Because Jesus is teaching to a crowded house. And these men can't break through the crowds, and so what do they do? You might know the story. They climb onto the roof. Can you imagine how difficult it is to get a man, a paralyzed man lying in a bed, a full-grown man, up onto a roof? And what they do is they get up on the roof, and then they cut a hole in the roof, and they lower the man down in front of Jesus. Can you imagine? Jesus is teaching to a packed house. All of a sudden, pieces of the roof are falling on people's heads. They're like, what's going on? And they look up, and there's this man lying on a bed and laid before the Lord Jesus. Now, the four men don't say anything. The paralyzed man doesn't say anything. The condition is pretty obvious. He's lying there. He can't move. Apparently, this man has come for healing. But Jesus sees beyond what is apparent. It says in verse 2, when Jesus saw their faith. Faith, that's an important word. We looked at that word faith when we looked at the centurion who believed that Jesus had the power to not only heal his servant, but he believed Jesus is who he says he was. He was the Christ. And that is exactly what these men believe. They believe Jesus not only was able to perform great signs and wonders, but that he was who he said he was. He's the Christ, the Son of God in the flesh, the Son of Man. And so Jesus saw their faith, and he says to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Literally, it's, 
Have courage, child. That's a tender word, isn't it? Jesus has tender words for tender hearts. This man can't or doesn't say anything to Jesus, but he doesn't have to. Jesus knows his struggle. Jesus knows his pain. He knows his sorrow. And he has a really encouraging word for this man. He, he wants to lift his spirits, lift his head up. He, he says, you know, in a sense, he's getting ready to relieve him of his biggest problem in life. He says, have courage, child. Your sins are forgiven. That is a mind-blowing statement. Two reasons. Mind-blowing statement, first of all, because he doesn't even address the physical problem. Yet. He will, but he doesn't yet. This man's obviously paralyzed. He's lying on a bed, not motionless before Jesus. And, and we don't know why this man is paralyzed. We're not given the history. It could have been a sinful decision that led to his paralysis, or just an unfortunate condition that he's had since birth. We don't know. But regardless of his physical condition, this man is like the rest of us. He has a desperate spiritual condition. He is a guilty sinner. We can learn something from this. You need to know something. The unfortunate circumstances in your life, whether it's a difficult childhood, a traumatic experience, a tragic loss, as painful as those things are, as difficult as they are, should warrant our sympathy, the sympathy of other people. Know this, they don't absolve you of your guilt or your sin. So many people make excuses for their sin and treat external circumstances, hardships, as like the hall pass that will get them into heaven. You know what? I was dealt a bad hand. That's why I am the way that I am. That's why I sin. It's somebody else's fault. It's not mine. How about this man? A paralytic. Can't move. That's a pretty bad hand, isn't it? That's an unfortunate circumstance. That's a, that's a bad physical condition. But you know what was worse? His sin. He had a bigger problem than his paralysis. Deeper. And it's the problem that you and I have too. We're sinners. And we're guilty before God. We need a Savior. So it's striking that Jesus would address that issue first. The second thing is that Jesus addresses the spiritual problem with divine authority. Who does this man think he is? When he declares on behalf of God, your sins are forgiven. What, is, what does Jesus mean when he says that? To be forgiven is to be released from moral or legal obligation and consequence. You're no longer guilty before God. That's what Jesus said. Your debt has been canceled. Your death sentence has been revoked. Your obligation has been satisfied. God has dropped the gavel and He's declared you innocent. That's quite a claim. Because only the offended party can pardon the offender. 
You know this is true. If somebody offends you, right? And maybe they go to someone else to say that they're sorry about offending you. Like, wait a minute, what gives? I'm the offended party. They need to come and apologize to me, right? And then I grant forgiveness. You're not absolved or forgiven when you go to somebody else. Same is true here. Your forgiveness is granted by God. Jesus, on behalf of God, is granting forgiveness of this man's sin. That's quite a statement. And the scribes listening are, are, understand this. It says in verse 3, Behold, here's another thing Matthew wants us to look at. Look at what the scribes say to themselves. This man is blaspheming. Now, scribes are the Jewish scholars. They're theologians. They're students and teachers of the book. They were supposed to be. They know the gravity of Jesus' words here. A claim to forgive sins is an authority, a power of God, not of man. And so either this man is blaspheming, which would be true if the other was not true, unless he's God. And he is. So Jesus knowing their thoughts. I love this. This is a little divine miracle within a miracle. A display of his omniscience. He is God. He knows everything. So they don't even have to say this out loud. Jesus knows what they're thinking and says, what, why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Can you say or do either of those things? Can you tell a paralyzed man to get up and walk? Can you forgive someone's sin? Both are impossible. Both are impossible. No mere man can forgive sin. No mere man can, for, can reverse paralysis unless that man has divine authority. And so Jesus says this, that you may know, so that you can be sure. You know what will give you a confidence in my authority? That the Son of Man has power, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He looks at the paralytic, he says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And what does he do? He rose and went home. There's the proof. No prophet, priest, preacher, or king in history has been given this kind of power or has displayed this kind of power. Sure, prophets of old in the Old Testament have performed incredible signs and wonders. Um, you know, some have even risen the dead. Prophets like Elijah, Elisha. But none have claimed have the authority to forgive sins. This is a different kind, an extraordinary kind, a superior kind of prophet, priest, preacher, and king. Because he is the Son of Man. Son of Man, that title is designated for the God-man, the Son of God who condescended, became, and took on human flesh, the Son of Man. That's what he came to do. To forgive sins. Jesus prays in the high priestly prayer. He says, I have authority over all flesh. And he's praying to his father. You've granted me authority, power over all flesh. And here's the ultimate. The ultimate expression of that. So that I can give eternal life to those who you've granted to me. That's power. That's extraordinary. 
I wonder if you see what the scribes could not see, that Jesus is the only way for a man to be made right with God. Jesus is the only way. No other man has the authority to forgive sins, to pardon you of your sins, and that includes you. You can't pardon yourself of your sins. You stand guilty, and you need a Savior. And Jesus has proven His authority to be able to do that. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, fearful, but, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. This is good news. There's one who can forgive us of our sins. That's Jesus Christ. And so the first interaction with the healing of the paralytic highlights his authority to forgive sin. The second interaction, the calling of Matthew and his dining and reclining with tax collectors and sinners highlights his mission to forgive sin. So that's the second point, his mission to forgive sin. Jesus shows us that forgiving sin is more than another cool party trick. It's not just for show. It's actually the thrust of His purpose. It's why He came. Look at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. This is one of my favorite interactions with anybody that the Lord Jesus has on earth. Matthew, the tax collector. Does that name sound familiar? Here is our author, the author of the Gospel of Matthew. And what was his occupation before the Lord called him? He was a tax collector. You've got to understand who tax collectors were to understand the gravity of this interaction. Tax collectors were Jewish defectors, traitors, to their country, traitors to their religion. They collected tax, not on behalf of the temple, not on behalf of their own Israeli government or their own theocracy. They collected tax for the Roman oppressors on Rome's behalf. And they pocketed and got rich from this kind of oppression. They were taking advantage of their own people. They were especially despised and ostracized ostracized by the Jewish community. They were forbidden from the temple. They could not worship. They were considered lowlifes, outcasts. Hey, but don't feel bad for them. They're not victims here. They're perpetrators, greedy men. This is not an honest way to make a living. This is a position where they would have the ability to make a dishonest money grab. They had authority to collect tax on Rome's behalf, but they often abused that authority to exaggerate the amount owed, and they pocketed the difference. These were greedy men. The kind of riffraff that surrounds Matthew at his own house, he's surrounded by other tax collectors and sinners, shows just how bad of the company that he engaged in. Sinners is just a general word that would include criminals, prostitutes, thieves, robbers, other outcast lowlifes of society. Matthew was not a closet sinner. He wasn't trying to save face. Look at where Jesus sees him. Look at verse 9. Jesus passed on from there and saw a man 
called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Like a drunkard in a bar. Like a, like a prostitute on a street corner. Matthew is found at his sin station in public. This is who he was. And I love the, the frankness, the simplicity of how Matthew writes it. The ugliness at all. This is who I was when Jesus saw me. When he found me. A tax collector. Engaged in my sin. I just was, as I was looking at this, I was recalling where Jesus found me. Right? Jesus, Christian, found you somewhere in your sin. Maybe you're trying to hide it. Maybe you're just like Matthew out in the open with it. Jesus found me backstage, putting on a costume for a play titled Morgan Maitland, The Good Kid. Who's he fooling? A hypocrite, a play actor, a fraud, a fake believer. That's where Jesus found me. And I remember the moment, I remember, I don't know if you remember that moment, the overwhelming sense when I realized that Jesus saw right through the mask and he knew me for who I really was a desperate sinner, a faker, a fraud. Do you remember? Where were you? When Jesus found you, when He saw you, I wonder, I, I would really love to be at this scene to see Jesus, see Matthew, and I wonder if He looked back and, and maybe glanced and made eye contact and quickly looked away, ashamed, knowing who He was, knowing that nobody else wanted anything to do with Him. Here's a holy man, and He surely heard that Jesus was a holy man. And He knew, without a shadow of a doubt, I'm a desperate sinner. What would that holy man, what, He would want nothing to do with me. Yet he does. Instead of avoiding the tax collector like the rest of Jewish society, like the rest of the world, I don't want to go see the tax man, especially these kind of tax men. What does Jesus do? He doesn't avoid him. He engages him and hands him an invitation. Follow me. Follow me. Oh, the mercy and the grace behind that statement. An invitation to follow the Lord Jesus, even though you are a desperate, wicked sinner. Forgiveness, grace, mercy, all offered in that statement. Follow me. Instead of you being a desperate sinner, I'll make you a disciple of mine. Just a tender, tender moment. And I, I mean, we can't get into Matthew's head. He, again, he writes so simply here. He just states what happened. Jesus said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. He didn't need much. Matthew was ripe ripe for discipleship. He was ready. It didn't take much convincing. He knew he was a sinner. He needed a Savior. No doubt he heard of Jesus forgiving sin, and all he needed was an invitation, a call to discipleship, and he followed. Luke says he left everything. He got up from that tax booth and gave his life to Jesus Christ. That's the invitation to discipleship, by the way. It isn't, oh, Jesus, I, you know, I respect, I, I look up to your teaching, you're a good example, I'll, I'll kind of follow from afar, I'll keep up with you through the news channels. No, 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 the call to discipleship is life surrendered. I'm yours. 
And even though Jesus finds us at our sin station for who we really are, He calls us to leave that former life, that old self behind, and to follow Him. Matthew didn't follow Jesus and continue to collect taxes, if you know what I mean. He gave his whole life to Him. Left his sinful lifestyle behind. And I love this. Matthew is so excited. He's so eager to be a new disciple of Jesus Christ. He invites all his friends to a dinner party. And it's a bunch of wicked sinners. It's like the, the slop from the gutter, these people. Criminals, prostitutes, thieves, money swindlers, and other tax collectors. He invites everybody he knows, and these are the only people he knows and has friendship with. And of course, the Pharisees don't like it. They see Jesus reclining at the table with tax collectors and sinners. And when they see this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, this is not a sincere question. This is an accusation. They're obviously upset. And notice they disassociate themselves from Jesus and the sinners. Why does your teacher? Did you catch that? Not why does the teacher? Or why does our teacher? Why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? There's nothing we need to learn from him. He's not like us. He's an opponent, a blasphemer. So they disassociate themselves from Jesus and they disassociate themselves from the sinners. Those sinners over there. Not us, those ones. Or who the teacher eats with. We're not like them. If he really is a holy man, then he should be eating and reclining with holy men. Like us. In this accusation, the Pharisees put, them, put themselves above Jesus and above the sinner. What a prideful statement. This question just pregnant with prideful attitudes and thoughts, thinking they're better than everyone else. And Jesus responds with a cutting sermon. A cutting sermon. Two illustrations and then a main point. Two illustrations and a main point. Here's what Jesus says in verse 12. First of all, if you don't see a need for it, then you don't get it. If you don't see a need for forgiveness, then you don't get forgiveness. The first illustration is that of a doctor. Verse 12, when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. It's a simple human illustration. We understand it. Those who are sick go to the doctor for treatment. But if you don't know you're sick, or you don't think you're sick, you don't go to the doctor. Similarly, if you don't know you're a sinner, you don't even recognize yourself as a sinner, then you're not going to go to the great physician, the Savior, Jesus Christ. You're going to see no need for Him. And if you don't see a need for Him, then you don't get it. You don't get forgiveness. So if you don't see the need for it, you don't get it. Number two, if you don't understand the heart of it, then you don't get it. If you don't understand the heart of forgiveness, the heart of our faith, the heart of Christianity then you don't get forgiveness. Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This was a quote from the prophet Hosea. 
They should have been familiar with it. They're scribes, Pharisees, teachers of the Old Testament. And in this scripture, God is indicting Israel, condemning Israel for continuing the ritualistic duty of religion, of sacrifice, but they miss the heart of it. It was an empty religion. They saw the sacrifices and offering. It was like a to-do list, a, a check off the box. And they had no true heart for God, no heart for other people. They took forgiveness for granted. A sacrificial system that was meant to point them towards atonement, to point them to forgiveness of their sin, it was just like a, another Monday morning, Tuesday morning, another thing that they do for their religion. So they take forgiveness for granted completely. And by the way, when you take your own forgiveness for granted, you're going to take other people for granted. They correlate. If you don't, if you don't feel the weight and understand the mercy of God towards you, a desperate sinner, then you're not going to treat other people with that same kind of humility, mercy, forgiveness. You're going to hold yourself above them just like the Pharisees did. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. Those who have been forgiven little, love little. You need to remember that as Christians. If you're having a hard time forgiving others in Christ, then you need to go back to the book, just like these Pharisees. You need to go and learn what it means, what the, what the heart of your faith is, a faith that you receive by mercy, grace, forgiveness. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Don't go through the motions of Christianity. That's empty religion. Go back to the heart of it. And if you don't understand the heart of it, then you don't get it. We ought to be mercy-motivated people doing our religious things like gathering in the church, like like giving our money to to the church, like serving one another. We should be doing that motivated by mercy. Love, grace, forgiveness, because God has given us all those things. Not duty, not checking a box, not a performance checklist. And so Jesus gets to the main point here in verse 13. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And what Jesus means by this, I just want to insert a simple uh, prefix to the word righteous. I came not to call the self-righteous. That's what he means by that. But sinners, a.k.a. those who think that they're righteous and don't need forgiveness. I didn't come for those people. I came for sinners. Those who recognize their need. Those who know they're desperate and need a Savior. Remember, Christian, this is the reason for the season. This is why Christmas is so great. God fulfilled his mission. He sent his son from heaven to earth to be our substitute, to atone for our sins, to give us forgiveness through his perfect sacrifice and his glorious resurrection. And this mission isn't just a distant theological truth. This is personal. He did this for you. Are you seeing that in this Christmas season? The mission of Christ, what he accomplished for you? So we've seen his authority to forgive sin, his mission to forgive sin, and finally, this third point, his new way for the forgiven. There's a new way for the forgiven. 
The disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Here's the real question behind the question. Why don't you, Jesus, ascribe to our religious system? Why aren't you fitting our mold? Why don't you fit in our box? Why is it that your teaching and the Pharisees' teaching don't jive? Don't connect? That's what they're asking. And Jesus responds. First, he addresses the fasting question. Well, before that, though, what you've got to understand about the Pharisee, the Pharisees' system, okay? The Pharisees had essentially taken the Old Testament, Old Testament law, and they twisted it and made it into their own religious system. And so the commands of God or the intention of God behind fasting, behind things like tithing or behind cleansing or even resting on the Sabbath, they took those ideas, they stripped them of their original purpose, and they repurposed them, again, like a, like a checkbox. If you do these things, then you're a good person. But if you don't do these things, then you're a bad person. Well, doesn't that sound like every other religious system in the world? Essentially, appeasing God by your own works. That's what the Pharisees had created. That was not the intention of the Old Testament. And so Jesus isn't Jesus' new way is not contrary to the Old Testament. It's contrary to the Pharisees' way. So that's what Jesus is addressing here. So Jesus reminds them that the purpose of fasting is mourning. And why in the world would you mourn when joy's here? Emmanuel is here. God is with us. Forgiveness of sin has been provided. So these disciples are walking with Jesus, the answer to the big problem in their life. There's no reason to fast. Jesus says, hey, when I leave, maybe there would be an appointed time to fast. Maybe believers would fast during that time, looking forward to Christ's return. Maybe there's a good reason to fast, but not now. Not when the Savior walks in our midst. And then Jesus addresses the real issue behind the issue. Basically, his statement is this. Jesus' new way is detached from, and it does not fit into the Pharisees' old way. That's what these illustrations tell us. He says, no one, look at verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. What I'm teaching you, my way, doesn't fit, doesn't connect with the Pharisees' old way. He uses another illustration. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine spilled. The skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. So both are preserved. Jesus' gospel of the kingdom. The message of forgiveness, grace, mercy. The fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. His sacrifice on the cross. His resurrection from the dead. That's not going to fit into the Pharisees' religious system. That's new wine. doesn't fit in old wineskins. In fact, it blows it up. Blows it up. His new way is like no other way that a man or a religion can fabricate. Here's the essence of it. The essence of Christianity is this. Jesus Christ forgives sinners by His grace and mercy. Jesus Christ forgives sinners by His grace and mercy. The essence of most other religions is this. 
God is appeased by your good works. Jesus Christ forgives sinners by His grace and mercy. God is appeased by your good works. Notice the difference. One is a gift from God. The other is a performance for Him. One makes God the Savior. The other leaves you your own Savior. One gives rest, assurance, confidence, hope, and joy. And the other demands relentless effort. Leaves a man uncertain at best, desperate at worst. One is the truth. The other is a pipe dream. To think that you can please a holy God with your good works? Like I said at the beginning, billions of people are damned not believing they're too bad for forgiveness, but they believe they're too good for it. They don't need it. The Pharisees, that was their problem in this whole passage. And it doesn't matter what kind of religious system is wearing that mask. That is the essence of it. God is appeased by our good works, and that system fails. It's old wineskin. It's tattered, torn, old, useless, worthless since the dawn of time. No man can do good enough to atone for their sin. Only a perfect life, a perfect substitute, a perfect sacrifice can. It's Jesus. Jesus is the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. We need forgiveness. We need forgiveness. And it is only found in Christ. When you stand before God on Judgment Day, what can you say? I was a good man. I tithed at church. I read the Bible. I was a loyal husband. A good father. I did the best with what I got. The reply will be, yes, but who's going to pay the bill? C.S. Lewis, in an essay titled Forgiveness, it's a wonderful essay. He said, when you go to a doctor, you show him the bit of you that's wrong. Say, a broken arm. He said, it would be a mere waste of time to keep on explaining that your legs and throat and eyes are all good. You may be even mistaken to think so. In any, any, anyway, if they are right, the doctor already knows that. But what about the arm? What about your sin? Have you turned to Christ in saving faith? Have you confessed your sin, asked for forgiveness, believing in Him alone for salvation? And if that's true, believer, if that's true of you, never forget what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, this is good truth for us this morning. I'm just so thankful for the forgiveness that you've granted me of my sin. I'm the worst sinner that I know, and I've received such mercy and grace from you, O God. Such a wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. So tender in His words. So truthful. He's the man that I want to follow with my life. God, I pray that every person in this room would follow Jesus. They'd repent of their sin and truly believe in Him for salvation as the only way for their sins to be forgiven. And I pray that, God, we as believers would be messengers of forgiveness 
messengers of mercy, messengers of grace, that we would not revert back to, kind of like John's disciples did, this kind of pharisaical, works-based religion. We can easily go back to stuff like that, God, and, and become legalistic, become hard truthers, and, and, not, and lack grace, lack mercy, lack forgiveness. Help us know what it means that you desire mercy because, God, you are a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Help us to know you, God, so that we can live and and show you to others in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.